0: Take our lives and set them to be a welcome table for your grace, O Lord. Amen. Over the past few weeks, I've been trying to pick up the rules of a new sport, standing on the sidelines of lacrosse games at various venues in the metro area. Whatever else I may have gathered about the sport, it is clear that a number of the other parents looking onto the field have a fairly substantial body of advice to offer to their children and to other people's children, the coaches, the referee, and in certain higher decibel cases also to a number of the residents who live in neighboring counties. Having refereed a little soccer in my time, I can attest to the fact that practically nothing that is shouted from the sidelines ever makes much sense to the people on the field. I'm sure there is by now a plethora of scientific evidence to support this claim, yet it seems to do little to dim the enthusiasm of the truly committed parent on match day. After all, Is there any better place to live vicariously through the triumphs and downfalls of our children than the sports field? Every once in a while, one of the children who is actually playing the game will hear their name pierce through the din, look up somewhat startled, stop in their tracks to see what all the fuss is about. At that moment, of course, they promptly lose all sense of what's happening on the field at which point the parent who had bellowed their name repeats it, only this time really loud, as if to say, haven't you been listening to me at all? A question everyone else already knows the answer to. Through the metaphorical language of John's gospel today, we hear the assertion that in a world of name-calling, Jesus also calls each of us by name. It is the promise that somehow, above the cacophony of a world shouting out to us to be, or do, or buy, or become a myriad of things, we will somehow hear the voice of the one who calls our name for none of those reasons. The call of Jesus is for us to find our way through the gate to the pastures of abundant life. sometimes wondered what it would be like if one of the parents on the sidelines of a sports game shouted out to their child, I love you, rather than sporting directions. I would do so myself. But given I'm often dressed in clerical collar, rushing to games following duties here, I am already embarrassing enough. (laughs) So I'm pretty sure my children would never truly forgive me if I declared my undying love for them two minutes before halftime. It's a shame I don't have more courage, but I am learning. Recently I've been saying I love you much more frequently to my sister now awaiting a bone marrow transplant in her fight against leukemia. My English family's never been overly affectionate in that way, but I decided I needed to channel a bit more of my American self to help us say to one another what really mattered. You never know when the clock is running down on you. So better say it now while you can. In many ways, the entire mission of the church can be summed up as an attempt, flawed and incomplete as it is, to say to the world around it, God loves you. It's really that simple at its heart. Over these past six years of looking out from the rector's office window on West Peachtree I've often wondered about the gap between that conviction that God loves the people passing by and those people actually believing it. It is not merely in these increasingly post-religious times that more and more people are seeking their spiritual answers beyond the church. It is also that too often the message many people hear from the church has not been grace and love, but judgment and exclusion. Too many have been told by the church that there's something wrong with them because of their sexual orientation or gender identity, judgment and even vitriol visited upon people all in the name of Jesus. Others have looked at the church around them and see a model of economic exclusivity or a certain kind of racial homogeneity or simply an insider's mentality that says to them, you don't belong here. The poor, the unhoused, and the unwell can especially doubt that the church could ever be a place of welcome for them. We don't say welcome here merely because we think it is a good way to encourage people to give faith a chance in an increasingly secular age. We say welcome because in a world too quick to count people out, the church has to be the place that counts them in. Welcome is more than just having a warm and winning personality. It is one of the most profound Christian acts. And it is exactly what people do when they have known for themselves the abundant pastures of grace, seeking to open a gate for others to find their way home too. This evening, we will do precisely that, exploring new ways of worship and eating together in this place that we will hope will help us make a little more space at the table for others to come in. This new attempt to build community here is an expression of something that I believe has always been true of this church, that this is a community of generous hearts, open to friend and stranger, always expanding our working definition of what it means to love like Jesus. Our hope is that people will find the style of worship and a chance to share a meal together afterwards, not simply an appealing new way to be the church. Our hope is that around that table of God's welcome, we all might be changed. For that is certainly table fellowship's promissory note that we see written for us in the Acts of the Apostles. Unlike the Greco-Roman practice of public table fellowship, that placed everyone in subservience to the deified emperor, the first followers of Jesus placed Christ, the servant king, as the head, because of which everyone else had an equal place at the table. It is hard for us now to imagine how utterly electrifying that must have felt. These meals were extraordinary statements of defiance against the status quo not only of the imperial order, but revolutionary in the real sense of that word for those who gathered, for it turned them around to a completely new orientation for living. We hear how they began to hold things in common, selling their possessions and goods, distributing to all as any had need. Their welcome table had the effect of inviting the risen Christ into their lives, And as a result, nothing would remain the same. Grace turned them around. And now that they could see one another rightly, they couldn't help but recognize the risen Lord alive in the person next to them. I invite you to help us make good on that promissory note, to widen a table in this place for God's great welcome of all people in the poetry of Jan Richardson let us set a table for these God's people let us see in one another the glory of God fully alive we will become bread for a hungering world we will become drink for those who thirst the blessed will become the blessing and everywhere will be the feast Amen.